Step three asks us to make a decision to turn our will to the care of a higher power. Why is this so hard for many of us? Welcome to episode 233 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Laura, Barbara, Lucy, and Anne. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Laura, Barbara, Lucy, and Anne for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. I wanted to open with a reading. This is from the Al-Anon Daily Reader, One Day at a Time in Al-Anon, often referred to as ODAT. This is from June 17th. By the time we reach our study of step three, we begin to get a sensation of gently, gradually being led to truths we never realized or put to use. This step is a challenge to each of us personally. It suggests a decision to let go and let God take a hand in our affairs, which God can do only if we surrender our self-will and turn our lives over to God's care. Step three is a distillation of the central thought of philosophers throughout the centuries. Wouldn't it be wise to accept their wisdom as greater than my own? The words made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him could make life so easy for me if only I could subordinate my will to God's. This is a stumbling block for so many of us. We feel obliged to apply the force of our will to our problems. No solutions can be found in this way. Step three says made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And as I have mentioned before, I'm working with a small group which we call AWOL Group, standing for A Way of Life or A Way of Living. We are studying the steps together using the book Paths to Recovery. And we just started step three a few weeks ago. And we've looked at the first six questions in that chapter. Those questions are, how do I feel about turning my life over to a higher power for guidance? How do I know who or what my higher power is? Am I willing to turn my problems over? What could help me be willing? How can I stop thinking, trying, and considering, and actually make a decision? Have I had a problem making decisions in my life? Give examples. If I am unable to make a decision, what holds me back? So I thought for this episode, I would look at how I have answered those questions over the years, because I have done this three times. Well, I'm doing it the third time, and I still have the books from those previous times. So starting with the first question, How do I feel about turning my life over to a higher power for guidance? In October 2002, I wrote, This is really the crux of the matter. I have always felt that I should be in control of my life. As one of the readings pointed out, this has not always worked well. I guess the key word for me in this question is guidance. It is acceptable, and I put that in quotes, to ask for guidance. I still have to decide to follow it. I remember words from a person in one of my meetings who said, in step three, we decide to turn over. We don't necessarily turn over. I have already decided to accept guidance as it comes from the Al-Anon groups. If they are my higher power, then where is the problem? And the word God is scary to me in 2002. In the margin, I probably wrote during the group discussion, a question, loss of free will. In March 2011, I wrote to, how do I feel about turning my life over to a higher power for guidance? I wrote, I do this on a daily basis, although I sometimes have trouble recognizing which problems need such guidance. I have an ongoing need to be, quote, free of the burden of self, which is a line from the uh, what's called the AA Third Step Prayer. The Third Step Prayer, as written in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. For me, that has too many capitalized pronouns. It grates, I guess, is is what I would say. But the 
theme of the prayer that as I hold on to self-will, I am binding myself to be less than I could be does resonate with me. And I think that's what I meant when I wrote that in the book. And so then answer I wrote back in December of 2017. The key word for me here is guidance. Maybe I'm still too self-willed, but I want to keep at least keep an illusion that I have some control over how I live my life. The idea that a power greater than myself could be wiser and could guide me to solutions I might not come up with on my own is attractive. I think my resistance comes from the misguided notion that a higher power must be a God, capital G. If I visualize it instead as the collective wisdom and experience of the program and its members, then it is easy to say yes. Well, it's interesting because in 2011, I was like, yeah, I just do this. And in 2017, I'm back to like, yeah, you know, I still have some issues here. I, I see progress. Um, also an echo from 2002 to 2017 about the word guidance in the step or in the, in the question, how do I feel about turning my life over to a higher power for guidance? And I just don't like the idea of somebody controlling my life totally, I guess. So we still got, still got some stuff going on there. Yep. The next question, how do I know who or what my higher power is? In 2002, I wrote a higher power is the al group. It has brought a measure of serenity and sanity to my life. Sharings in the group often address something I am struggling with. Sometimes I am not aware previously that I am struggling with it. And I wrote operational colon. I get good guidance for my life. And emotional is it feels right. In 2002, I was pretty clear that at least a higher power in my life was the program, the group, because I had a lot of evidence that following the guidance, the care of the program really helped. What did I say in 2011? How do I know who or what my higher power is? To me, this is not an important question. The real questions are, how do I ask for help and how do I receive guidance? And I think I wrote most, most importantly, how do I receive guidance? I receive guidance from the mouths of others, especially at meetings. My knowledge and understanding of the al principles and quiet contemplation. So I had gone from, hey, yeah, it's the group, to, you know what? I don't need to know that the question doesn't matter to me because what matters to me is the outcome. How do I ask? How do I receive? And then in 2017, I wrote in the answer to the question, how do I know who or what my higher power is? I don't. And it doesn't matter. I just need to listen. So that's a shorter form of what I said in, in 2011, that what the understanding that I have come to about how I have turned my life over to a higher power is that it's the important thing is not a vision of a higher power. I don't have to define it. I just have to know that my higher power is there. My higher power cares for me. And that if I pay attention to the messages that I receive, I will get guidance. Next question. The question says, am I willing to turn my problems over? What could help me to be willing? And I wrote, try to. Interesting. In 2002, I wrote, I am resistant, I think, to turning my whole life over. I think I have managed to turn some of my problems over to my higher power, at least in part. Practice, question mark. Continuing good results, question mark. So I think the idea here is that I need to practice turning my problems over. I need to recognize when I get a, quote, good result from turning problems over, from letting go of my will and and letting the universe guide me to an outcome, I guess, yeah. I wrote, I'm a show-me person. To have faith without some evidence is hard for me. And that I think that goes back to, to step two about faith and truth that we were talking about on the show recently. Trust, I think it was in the trust episode. We were talking about faith and trust, yeah. Okay, 2011. Am I willing to turn my problems over? And what might help me be willing? Oh, so the practice and, and good outcomes, recognizing outcomes was one way to help me be willing, yeah. In 2011, I wrote to a large extent, yes, there are problems that I'm not willing to let go or to listen to the answer. As I see the program working in my life, 
it becomes easier and easier. And I wrote, read literature, prayer, and meditation are important things in this step. Yep. Okay, 2017, am I willing to turn my problems over? And I wrote, for the most part, yes. And I guess since I said yes, then the second part, what would help me be willing, I didn't answer it because I didn't think it was relevant. And I think that's, you know, the practice that I've had over the 15 plus years that I've been in program, the evidence that that when I let go of holding on to an outcome, when I let go of trying to control other people to achieve the outcome that I want, the outcome that appears is always acceptable, sometimes better than the one I wanted. It's a whole lot easier if I'm not trying to, you know, steer this thing that is not steerable, I guess. Then we move on to this weird question. How can I stop thinking, trying, and considering and actually make a decision? At least in my most recent group, there was a couple of different interpretations of that question. One was that it's just a question about making decisions in general, and the other was that it's a question about making exactly the decision that step three asks us to. And I think I may have, over the years, answered that from both perspectives. Let's take a look. What I wrote first was, ouch, like, um, you know, hey, dude, get off the pot here and, and make a decision. I was just waffling, 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 I guess. I wrote, doing the lead last week helped, I think. I must have done a lead about step three, sounds like. Some ideas here, maybe using a God box, write a letter to God, letter from God. I don't know what that's, that's a reference to something that I don't remember what it was. And then faced with something completely out of my control when I'm powerless, it's a lot easier to make a decision when I, I really recognize that I'm powerless, I guess. It looks to me like I didn't have a good idea how to answer that question in 2002. I'm still struggling with it. Let's move ahead almost a decade to 2011. I wrote, I think for me, it is to recommit to the decision. I feel that I need to be less passive in this turning over process. I need to have faith in the outcome. Okay. By 2011, I felt that I had made that decision and I, and I just need to continue to commit to that decision because I want to take it back. I want to take it back. Oh, yeah. In 2017, or maybe it was 2018 by the time I got to this question, I interpreted the question at this point as just being general decision-making. I wrote, by recognizing that a decision doesn't have to be final, I can change my mind if new evidence appears, in most cases, at least, in the discussion in the group I remember. And I think I was thinking about this as I wrote this, that, you know, there are some decisions that it's really hard to uh, to change. Like, if you decide to have a child and then you have a child, you can't really undo that. You decide to get a tattoo, it's really hard to undo that decision. But if you decide... To have lunch at a particular restaurant, you can change that, you know, a little bit of evolution over the year there. And it's interesting that I really interpreted the question differently this, this time than in the previous two times. It's interesting to me anyway. Fifth question, have I had a problem making decisions in my life? Give examples. Let's see what I wrote in 2002 for that question. I feel like this is so, but I don't have an example. If I'm trying to decide, for example, to buy something, I will consider the alternatives, gather info, weigh, etc. But then I'm usually able to come to a decision without a lot of waffling and agonizing. I guess I don't like to make decisions with incomplete information. This may apply here. And I think by here, I mean step three decision. And then a note that I wrote during our discussion. For many things, I don't want to commit. Hmm. So in 2002, I thought, I don't know, I, I, I think I have a problem making decisions, but I can't think of any examples. Let's see what happened in 2011. I wrote yes and no. I definitely have a problem publicly committing to a decision that I have already made in my mind. I think I want to reserve the right to change my mind so I could view this as a problem in making decisions, too. Example, going out to dinner. Uh, the, uh, the classic going out to dinner decision. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? Well... I think I want to go to this place, but if you don't want to go there, that's fine. You know, that, that, that conversation. Yeah, that one still resonates. In 2017, 2018, I wrote, have I had a problem making decisions in my life? Or yes, exclamation point. So clearly my 
self-understanding has evolved over the years. The prime example that I wrote here, and I think I just wasn't willing to even talk about this in 2002, was whether to leave my marriage when my wife was still drinking. So this was a question that really I came into Al-Anon with, and I didn't really view it yet as a decision. What I viewed it was two possible outcomes, neither of which I wanted. One was to continue to live in the craziness of active drinking. The other was to leave. And I didn't want either of those. I didn't see how I could continue to live in this craziness. The beauty of the program is that it taught me, it gave me tools to live with alcoholism and not be crazy. Okay. But at that time, and at the time I think I was writing the answer to these questions, I did not see how that could happen. The other possible outcome that I saw was leaving, and that was not something that I wanted to do. I did not want to, I mean, partly I didn't want to go through all the pain and struggle of breaking up a household, um, all the stuff, the kids, you know, it's like, this is not something I want to do. But also I think I just I didn't, didn't feel that I wanted to cut her out of my life. I just wanted the drinking gone, and I didn't see how I could do that. But in 2002, I was still in the really in the grips of that and had not come to clarity on it. And the clarity that I eventually found was to be able to love her while, while she was still in the grips of her disease and to, to commit to stay. Um, and I've talked about that before. This was a decision where Alanon told me to wait. So I don't know. What did I have trouble making a decision there? I, I think it was also was a false binary that there were other outcomes that I hadn't even considered. And the outcome of being able to live with the drinking and not be crazy was, was an outcome that just wasn't visible to me yet at that point. So other examples, simple stuff, what to order at a restaurant. We come back to this. What, what do you want to eat? Well, there's so many choices and they all look so good and I want all of them. And I have to pick one. This is hard. This is hard. I don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is even harder maybe when you know, if it's a restaurant that I, I patronize, then I can tell myself, well, next time I'll get the other thing. Or last time I got that, this time I'm going to get the thing I didn't get last time. But if we're traveling or something like that, and we're going to be there once, and five things on the menu look so good, I'm like, ah, can't make a choice, can't make a decision. But also, large decisions have sometimes been easy. For example, deciding to have children. My wife and I were driving to my grandmother's memorial service. And I just had this like urge, whatever. I turned to her and said, I think it's time to start the next generation. And she said, yes, huge decision, really easily made. And another one that, you know, it was hard to do, but I knew what the decision was, was when we had to euthanize our dog because he had injured himself severely that we really couldn't fix it. And he'd had a good 10 years with us. I just knew that the best thing for him was to let him go. But it took a while to actually be able to say, yes, this is what we need to do. You know, I had to cry some, I had to hug my family and then, and then I could say yes, but I knew what the, I knew what the answer, I knew what the decision was. It was just hard to, to say it. So I think a little more clarity in the, in the answer to that question this time. The final question of the six, if I am unable to make a decision, what holds me back? And let's see what I said in 2002. I wrote C above, incomplete information, feeling loss of self-will, but going to church feels right. And I guess the shorthand there is that by making a decision earlier in the year, to go back to the faith of my childhood, which I had basically left for 25 to 30 years, just was totally unchurched, to go back and to immediately feel at home, to immediately feel that there was something there that I had been missing. You know, that's, that is an aspect of really doing step three. It really is. In 2012, I wrote... What holds me back? Fear of loss or change. Okay. Like things are going to be different and that's weird and I don't want them to be different. And I wrote, I have free will. So 
putting my will and my life into the care of my higher power is okay. So I want to continue to feel that I have free will. And and to some extent for me, those two words care of in the step, give me a little loophole, I guess, that enables me to say, yeah, I can do that. Even if the concept of like just turning myself over and letting a higher power run my life is not acceptable. And finally, this year, 2018, I wrote not wanting to let go. That's a consistent theme. And I think I also, during the, during the meeting, I wrote wanting it all. And I think that was more on the theme of what, why is it hard to make decisions in general? Well, I want, you know, I want everything on the menu. It seems less, less applicable to the step three decision. And so what I guess what I see by looking at the way I answered these questions over, over the 15 year period is that I have become much more comfortable and much more used to turning things, turning parts of my life at least over to the care of a higher power. And as a friend of mine said that I I thought was such wisdom, she said, you know, God's talking to me all the time, but when I come to a meeting, I'm listening. And so I hear things in the meeting that guide me. And I thought that, you know, that is so true that in order for me to really carry out the decision of step three, I need to decide to listen. I need to make times in my life when I am listening. And that's really what step 11 talks about sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and and the power to carry that out. That in step 11, it says, hey, dude, you got to listen. You got to ask for help and then help will come. What are your answers to these questions? How have you answered these questions or how are you answering these questions in your life, in your program? Let us know. You know, send us email, leave a voicemail. So I'm going to close this section with the quote from the reading. Again, that was June 17th in One Day at a Time in Al-Anon. This is a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. There is guidance for each of us, and by lowly listening, we shall hear the right word. Certainly, there is a right for you that needs no choice on your part. Place yourself in the middle of the stream of power and wisdom which flows into your life. Then, without effort, you are impelled to truth and to perfect contentment. After a short break, we'll continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. I found a lot of music for this episode. I just I went to Spotify and I searched for words like decide and decision and choose and then I listened to a bunch of songs, and I made a playlist that's got like, I don't know, 15 or 16 songs on it that I will put in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 233. The first song that I want to talk about is titled Just Decide by I Fight Dragons. It's a little bit dark, but it's about the the fact that there are times in our life where we need to make a decision. As the title says, we need to just decide. Some lyrics here. It's a nice day for a swim. Tie the weights around my feet and stumble in and dare the tide to turn. I've been waiting here so long, hoping the answers would just somehow come along. It takes time to learn, but I've got no more time to burn. My arms feel stronger than never before. My eyes see far beyond the tide. The only sure way to lose is being afraid to choose. So just decide. Just decide. I like the images here. I've been waiting here so long, hoping the answers would just somehow come along. And I, I feel that. I have done that. I don't know what the answer is. I'm just going to wait, and maybe an answer will come. And he's saying, you know, sometimes sometimes that's not going to happen, I guess. And that we have all the information, all the answers we're going to get, and we have to decide. The only sure way to lose is being afraid to choose. And again, so true. Sometimes if I... I faced a decision and I did not decide to do anything. And in consequence, I lost out on something good. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and in our lives this week. And I think it's actually been a couple of weeks because last week, we didn't do this segment. Uh, the conversation that I had with Amy was, was so long and so deep that 
and I was running out of time. I had other obligations, and so we didn't do that segment. So in my step meeting on the first Saturday of the month, there's a table that is working through the Al-Anon Blueprint for Progress Inventory. We're in a chapter of character traits, which sort of dichotomizes character traits and then asks questions. And the one that we looked at on Saturday was calm or worrisome. The question is, can I listen to other people's problems without worrying about them? Do I realize that action is often an antidote to worry? Do I use the serenity prayer to find a sense of peace? And I'll tell you that first question, I know that my answer to that question has changed so much since I came into program, but I still, when I hear about a problem that somebody has, I want to take it on. I want to fix it. And I've learned in the program that it is not my job. And I don't really have the ability to fix somebody else's problem. And knowing that, and it's it's step one, really. Um, it's step one and it's step three. It's understanding that other people have their own higher power who can guide them to um, you know, a better place. So by applying those steps to a situation that I hear about from another person, it enables me to not worry about their problem, mostly. Do I realize that action is often an antidote to worry? There was some real interesting discussion about this question, both focusing on two different kinds of action. One is, well, if there's something that I would be worrying about, is there an action I can take? I heard about this flowchart on on another podcast that is not a recovery podcast. It goes like this. Do you have a problem in your life? And if the answer is no, then don't worry. If the answer is, I don't know, then don't worry. The answer is yes, then we have another question. Can you do something about it? The answer is no, then don't worry. The answer is, I don't know, then don't worry. If the answer is yes, then don't worry. (laughs) You know, this flowchart tells you when to worry. And all of the branches lead to don't worry. And that's so true that worry is not productive. Worry only drags me down. And if I can take action, I should do it and then and then stop worrying because I've done what I can and worrying will not fix anything further. The other approach to this question about do I understand that action is an antidote to worry is just do something, you know, go for a run, play a game, do something to break the cycle of worry because for me, the worry cycle is worst when I'm alone and not doing anything because then it can, it can chew me up. It can, because there's nothing else for me to do. You know, late at night lying in bed is, is of course the prime example of that. That was interesting discussion. And then the third question, do I use the serenity prayer to find a sense of peace? The answer to that is yes, uh, but yes, but (laughs) yes, but there definitely are times that I could use the, the prayer more that I don't remember to. My AWOL group met, obviously talked about that. Um, we had been, it had been a little while because of the holidays, our schedule got a little off whack, but it's good to get back together. One of the things that I really value about that group is when we come together, every time we come together, we check in. You know, how are we? How is our life? In some cases, I think, you know, it's a safe place of people that we know love us that we can talk about things that we're struggling with that maybe our other friends don't understand and that are not really maybe appropriate to, to talk about in a meeting at length. So we might spend a half an hour with the five of us checking in, and, I, and there's real value there before we get to talking about the questions. Went to an open talk this Saturday from a guy that I have known for a long time. In fact, I believe he was one of the two people that gave me a phone number at my first Al-Anon meeting. Of course, I didn't call him. I've always really paid attention when he speaks. He doesn't speak a lot in meetings, but when he does, I almost always get some wisdom from it. He was the, he was the fellow that told me in, the, in a newcomer's meeting, he said, you know, we suggest you come to six meetings of Al-Anon before you decide whether we're right for you. And if Elanon's not right for you, we'll happily refund all your misery. <laughs> Just, you know, he's got that sort of dry, dry sense of humor, but he's also got so much knowledge and, and so much experience. It was a good talk. Did a little bit of something for myself recently, uh, and it did interfere with a meeting, but 
there's a local artist that I've been following that I really enjoy her music. And she was giving a concert at a local venue along with, you know, an opening act that I had never heard before. And both of them were just amazing. It was a really great concert. I was so glad that I went and, and my wife went with me and we got there early and had to stand in line before the doors opened. But we were able to get seats about two rows back from the, from the stage, which was great. Uh, so taking care of myself, doing things for myself to have fun. And then there's the, you know, acceptance of the weather. Not just acceptance, but taking appropriate action. So Friday, Thursday, it was really warm. It was like in the fifties. It was, it was crazy warm for January in Michigan. And that was kind of nice. It melted off a bunch of ice and snow from sidewalks and, and roads. But then over the course from Thursday night to Friday night, the temperature dropped. So it dropped from 50 something down to very close to zero in the space of about 24 hours. And Friday morning was when it was hitting that freezing point. The forecast called for freezing rain, ice, followed by snow, which is just not a good formula. And I looked at that and I said, what can I do? And what I could do was to leave home over an hour before I usually do so that I could get to work before it turned into ice. And then I could just stay inside all day. And by the time evening came around, it was going to be cold enough that the ice risk would be less that, you know, there would be salt and sand on the roads and, and it would be relatively safe again. And so I did that. To me, that was just a real example of the awareness, acceptance, action, the three A's that we, we've talked about. And I know there's an episode on it. Uh, go, if you want to find it, I would go to the recovery.show, click or tap on the search in the menu at the top, or if you're on a computer, there's a search box over on the right. And I would put awareness probably into the search box and it should pop up that episode. So I was aware that there was going to be a problem. I accepted that I needed to do something to mitigate the impact that problem might have on me, i.e. the ice, which was to take the action of getting up early and going to work early so that I didn't have to drive on the ice I didn't have to drive in the middle of other people driving on the ice, which is the scary part for me. I did, and everything worked out just fine for me. What have we got coming up for the recovery show? We're still working on parenting episodes. I'm grateful to those of you who have sent in shares. If you're interested in maybe a longer voice share, we can also work that out. We welcome your thoughts, experience, strength, and hope you can join our conversation please leave a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or your questions. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can call right now, 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at the recovery.show. Share your answers to the six questions I talked about today about making a decision. And our website, which is therecovery.show, does have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the music that we talk about, and links to other recovery podcasts and websites. I'll take a little break before looking at your feedback. And the second musical selection that I chose is by the Cranberries. It's titled Free to Decide. Some lyrics here. It's not worth anything more than it is at all. I live as I choose, or I will not live at all. So return to where you came from. Return to where you dwell, because harassment's not my forte, but you do it bloody well, and I'm free to decide. I'm free to decide. And the message that I get from this song is that nobody else can make this decision for me. It is, it is my choice, and I am free to make that decision. And it's just a, a nice poppy song, too. listener wrote to us that several Al-Anon books are now available in audio format. Those books are One Day at a Time in Al-Anon, Courage to Change, which is both of those are daily readers, and our core book, How Al-Anon Works. She said she was not happy with the audio quality she found in the, the samples at the Audible 
com website. I will put links in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 233 if you're interested in checking out the audio versions of these books or buying, I guess, really. Hi, Spencer. Thank you for the Begin in Stillness episode of The Recovery Show. I especially liked the distinction you made between resolutions and aspirations. It reminded me of the peace and gentleness of this program. So in the spirit of that, my aspiration for the new year is to find love. It's been two years since my relationship with the alcoholic ended. I aspire to be gentle with myself, keep my higher power close, and my heart open as I navigate online dating. All the best to you in 2018, Maria. Thank you, Maria, for sharing that. Christian writes, Hey, Spencer, I'm utterly new to Al-Anon and the concept of recovery at all. I've been to three meetings so far, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for your podcast. I've been binge listening lately to learn as much as I possibly can. I wanted to know if this book, Paths to Recovery, is available anywhere in a digital edition. I'm legally blind, so I must read electronically. A meeting here on Thursdays is using this for a book study, but I need it digitally to participate. If you know of anywhere I can get it electronically, that would be much appreciated. Listening to your podcast, it sounds like it's a big help to you as much as it is to us who are listening. I'm debating doing some blogging or podcasting myself as part of my recovery journey. Even though I'm so utterly new, I don't have a clue what I'm talking about or what to expect or really what's going on. Anyhow, maybe I'll join you someday as a guest host in the newbie corner, lol. Thanks again for your service. God bless and take care. Signed, Christian. In answer to your question, Christian, I do not know of a digital edition of Paths to Recovery, and I did respond with email suggesting that you might contact Al-Anon directly. They may have resources for visually impaired people that uh, are not listed in their in their online shop. Um, that's all I can think of. If somebody wanted to take on the task of digitizing it or, or reading it or something, it would be obviously a service to the community. Stephanie wrote in about being the sober parent. I am the sober parent of a six-year-old. My husband is an active alcoholic who has been struggling with achieving sobriety, both physical and emotional, since November 2016. He's been in and out of intensive outpatient therapy and just relapsed again for the umpteenth time that I know of. He has severe anger, deception, and judgment issues that have persisted throughout his drinking and attempts at sobriety. His drinking, our relationship problems, and the resulting instability are significantly impacting our daughter's psychological well-being. His deceit in particular and his potential endangerment of our daughter have thus far proved insurmountable problems in our path to recovery as a family. As a result, we separated at one point for four months, reunited, and he promptly relapsed. An added issue is that I suffer from a severely debilitating musculoskeletal disorder, which causes chronic pain and depleted stamina, such that it is difficult for me to be the sole caretaker of our daughter. It is also difficult for me to be a particularly supportive parent through crisis after crisis when caring for myself and my daughter takes 120% of my available resources on a day-to-day basis. I have innumerable questions and no good solutions thus far to the particular challenges of co-parenting a young child with either an active alcoholic or one seeking sobriety. I've been attending Al-Anon for almost a year, and I credit the program with changing my perspective on my entire life and giving me the serenity and tools to have survived this past year. And your podcast is another amazing resource that should share the credit for my sanity, such as it is. Yet, I still feel like many of my most urgent issues are not addressed by most Al-Anon tools. I would like to live and let live to mind my own business and to let my husband discover and recover in his own time without my interference. But in addition to being my husband, he's also the co-parent of my child. He's a known drunk driver who has recently come home with six or seven new dents in his car and whose sobriety is days or weeks old, if that. How do I know when he's sober enough to care for her or drive her when he's lied so frequently about his sobriety? Yet how can I demand he prove his sobriety without violating the principle that I should stay in my own lane? How can I let him drive my daughter anywhere until he has a proven track record of sobriety? Yet how do I prevent him from driving her when he refuses to acknowledge his drunk driving, his relapses, and his current drinking, and he refuses to abide by agreements carefully worked out with counselors and intermediaries? When he insists on relitigating the issue every morning before a four-block walk to school because he feels the restriction demeans him, how do I respond? And if he promises on a particular day to walk her and nonetheless drives her without a car seat because I happen to be out of the house, what should my response be then? What are my options and how can witnessing any of this possibly be healthy for my daughter? 
This is just one example of the everyday crises that are raised when trying to parent a child with an active or recovering addict or alcoholic. The problem with many of the wise wait-and-see prescriptions of Al-Anon is that the stakes are just too high when we're talking about a young child's life. While six months of meetings, meditations, journaling, and prayer may reveal options and proper perspectives without significant cost in many circumstances, six months is one-tenth of my daughter's life. Young children form impressions and belief systems with a speed and intensity unfathomable to us, and witnessing such dysfunction on a daily basis can negatively influence and scar that child in ways that could take years or a lifetime to unravel, much less heal. As the child of an addict and a dysfunctional family and the sibling of a recovering alcoholic, I am unfortunately all too familiar with the potential harms that I am inflicting by exposing my daughter to this circus every day. I'm absolutely thrilled that you're going to address these issues. Thank you so much for your incredible contribution to the world of recovery and my recovery in particular. Keep up the good work. Wow, Stephanie, that is a lot of questions there and, and some really, really hard issues. As I was reading, the concept that came into my mind around this question of how to protect your daughter is is about boundaries. That seems to be the Al-Anon concept, and it's it's not necessarily it's a wait not a wait and see concept in this case. It's a know what the boundaries are that you want to set, and it sounds like you definitely have done that. Um, so then the question is, well, how how do you enforce those boundaries? And that you know, when you're living with the guy and he's just not maintaining the agreements that he, the things that he agreed to. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a hard one. And yeah, I do feel that I feel that being a parent in recovery is a thing that we can do to help reduce the emotional and spiritual harm to our children. In particular, before I got into recovery, I was contributing to that harm by my actions, by my anger just stopping that helped. But also, I think modeling new ways of behaving that we learn can be really helpful. Modeling clear understanding of the disease, the way in which the disease exhibits itself, the behaviors that arise from the disease, I think can help children to understand that it's not about them in particular, but it's rough. You know, I can't obviously give you answers. I can feel with you. You know, my situation didn't get to that extent that it sounds like yours is. And I'm grateful for that. Thanks for writing. Good morning, Spencer. It's 8.30 here in Germany, and I just saw your new episode online. That means it is going to be a great day for me. As you know, I've been listening to your show for a bit more than a year now, and I look forward to it every week. Although I've been wanting to call and record my thoughts about being the sober parent of a small child, I've not found the time this week. I'm trying not to beat myself up for it and find the time next week. Surely another episode about parenting will come up. Just wanted to share one thought with you as we all need positive feedback. And this is in all caps. Your show is like the best chocolate in a chocolate box. I just got to say, oh, thank you. Once a new episode is online... I ponder when will be the best time to listen to it. I then download it and look forward to the perfect time to listen to it. Like the best piece of chocolate, I want to keep it for last. So I won't be listening to your new episode this morning driving to work, but we'll save it for a special time. I've made time for an hour walk by the river today, and I'll be savoring your episode then. Thank you, Laura from Munich, Germany. And thank you so much for the kind words, Laura. It's just awesome. I will say that if whenever you want to contribute a share about parenting, I will find a place to use it. Just because we had that episode doesn't mean that there's not a lot more to say, because there is a lot more to say. So if you want to record something and email it, if you want to set up a time to have a conversation with our six-hour time difference, we can do that too. Thanks, Laura. Dear Spencer, first I would like to tell you how much I enjoy listening to your podcasts. I'm a new listener just started a few weeks ago. The show was recommended to me from a friend at Al-Anon. When you speak of your own experiences and situation, I find myself relating to you very much. My husband is the alcoholic, and prior to him getting sober, we would go out and drink. And like your wife, I started to notice my husband drinking a lot more than me. I won't go on with my story, but I was wondering if you ever did a show on Will My Marriage Survive Even During Recovery, or something like that. Not like exactly that title. There's a show titled Stay or Leave, 
I think that particular show comes closest to that topic. It's an interesting topic and maybe uh, definitely one I think worth exploring. Back to the letter. My husband is sober one year, but our relationship is so much worse than when he was drinking. He has isolated me. He leaves in the morning for work and does not come home until 9 or 10. We have no relationship. He goes to meetings every day to the gym, and then I don't know what he does after that. We have two teenage kids. We used to eat dinner every night together. We rarely do that. He does not eat dinner with us. My kids are mad at his behavior and don't understand it. I've been going to Al-Anon for four months for support. I'm not sure if I want to continue to live with him and his behavior. Sometimes I just want him to leave. We talk every few months in depth. We chat at night when he comes home, but it is little stuff. He doesn't even sleep in our house. He sleeps in our pool house. It's insanity to me. I listened to one of the podcasts, So You Love an Alcoholic. It was fabulous. So helpful. Pauline, the last speaker, said when her husband got sober, she never saw him. She said she thought she would get divorced the first two years of sobriety. I finally found someone who felt the same as me. But she also said for there to be an us, recovery must be the most important thing for her husband. That really resonated with me. But she also said we should be grateful he is sober, and I get that. I'm grateful. I'm still in the beginning of my recovery, as you can tell. I'm wondering how it was for you and for others who had this experience. Did you go through the same isolation and confusion and loneliness as the alcoholic was recovering? I don't hear too many stories like mine, but perhaps this is not as uncommon as I think. Sorry for my long email. Thank you for listening. Kelly, how was it for me? I think I felt so isolated towards the end of the drinking that I didn't really feel a change when she achieved sobriety. And I think also I was, you know, happy she wasn't drinking, so that helped. But your story does sound very familiar to me because I have heard it from friends in the program. I have a friend who's struggling with this right now, and one of the things that she said she has found helpful is she's been able to talk with a couple who I guess are a little further ahead in his sobriety, and he's been able to say, yeah, I did that, I felt that. You know, if you're in a meeting and you hear somebody who's sort of been through a similar experience— Maybe go up and talk to them after the meeting and say, look, I'm struggling with this. Did this happen to you? And, you know, how did you deal with it? How did you get through it? <laughs> did you get through it? And that could help. I mean, that is that is how we help each other in this program is we share our experience. And we learn that we're not alone. And we maybe learn tools to make it easier. So thanks for that that note and that question. Hi, my name is Razy, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon for close to two years. I listen to your podcast almost daily as I do my housework, and I gain so much from each episode. I'm writing today because it could have been me speaking on your show, The Sober Parent. The speaker's story is mine almost to a T. My husband is in recovery for six months now. We have two children, ages two and a half and four. I have the same fears. I use the same tools, the same treating my husband like a child, the same anger and rage, the same awareness, etc., I mean, the likeness is staggering. I have not met anyone in recovery to have such a similar story. I'm so touched and so thankful for the speaker being so vulnerable and honest in sharing her story. I'm writing to say thank you and would love to connect with her if that's possible. Thank you, Razy. Well, I'm going to reach out. I know there are actually two people who shared a full story, I think, in that episode. One was Amy, who was my co-host, and the other was a person identified as D, who wrote, a long share that Amy read. So Racy would like to, uh, you know, to reach out. And what I was saying before, that we heal in Al-Anon by sharing our stories with other people, by finding the similarities, by hearing about the tools. So if you would like to communicate with Racy, send me an email, feedback at therecovery.show, saying, yes, I would like to, and I can put the two of you in touch. From Holly, I have become a regular listener of your show and it is so helpful to my recovery. I'm so grateful to have this resource available. I'm fairly new to recovery and this podcast is helping me work my program. Thanks again for such a wonderful show. Here's another one. Love, love, love the shows. I just listened to episode 15, Spencer, and I heard you make reference to an illusion from, I think you said, The Recovered Show. I cannot find it. I'd love to listen to something about illusion. 
Thanks again. Blessings, Diane. And after uh, we had a little back and forth email and realized that what I had been talking about is a reading from the AA big book about it's, it's often called the persistent illusion, the illusion that an alcoholic can drink normally. It starts on page 30 of the, the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And I will put a link in the show notes to an, on, an online copy of that book and that page. Julie asks, do you have a master list of all the songs you have suggested? There was a song several years back that really spoke to me, and now I can't find it and can't remember the title. It was something about a friendship, and one of the repeating lyrics was, aren't we great friends? But then it goes on to tell about how destructive the friendship was, like jumping into the water chain together, perhaps the chain around the neck, obviously referencing being in a relationship with an alcoholic. Thanks for the help, Julie. And... The, the the lyric fragment triggered it for me. This is a song that is from a local singer. And I don't know if it's about being in an alcoholic relationship or not. The title of the song is Drowning's Better with Your Friends. The artist is Misty Lynn and the Big Beautiful. I will put a link to uh, their Bandcamp page in the show notes. Thanks for the uh, the question, Julie. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Laura, Barbara, Lucy, and Ann did. And thank you again, Laura, Barbara, Lucy, and Ann. And if you send in a donation and I haven't thanked you yet, don't worry, I will. I'm trying to spread them out because there's at the end of the end of the year there's there seems to be a a bump in the number of donations that come in and then you know it kind of slacks off for a while makes sense we have also put together a list of recovery related books click or tap on the books link in the menu at the top of the page if you order one of these books from amazon through our website we will receive a small commission in fact anything you order from amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us it costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show, or just listening to us. We are here for you. And the last song that I picked, one I'd never heard before, I love it. The title is Choose. It's by Hightown Parade, and here's just a few lyrics. Choose. Choose the undecided and move on, my friend. Don't be undelighted if it comes to an end. You're neither wrong or right. You have to choose, my friend my friend. And it's just an encouragement to, you know, make that decision to understand that sometimes there's not a wrong or a right, um, but you still have to choose. And and it, it's a really, I thought it was a beautiful song. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We did not talk about a problem you are facing today. Feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.